And a couple of years ago, I had a, a time like that. Uh, something was happening in church life. You don't need to know the details at all, but it got quite heavy and it was weighing me down. And so I did the obvious thing. I went for a walk around the cemetery. Uh, happily, Reading isn't too far away from the second biggest cemetery in Europe. Uh, I walked there. I just wanted to spend time walking and breathing and thinking and praying. And as I walked, there was a funeral going on. Uh, it was the funeral of someone who belonged to another faith, a faith which does not believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, someone who, therefore, is in hell now. And then as I walked on, I came to a Zoroastrian corner of this huge cemetery. Zoroastrianism is an ancient Persian religion which does not believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It's a corner of that cemetery populated by people who are in hell. And then I met a monk, um, as you do. Uh, I've met the same monk in the same cemetery 14 years before. Uh, He would say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But actually, he's trying to contribute to his own salvation. He's trying to earn his own way. He's old now, and if he dies like that, he's going to go to hell. And I walked and walked that cemetery. 235,000 people are buried there. Some of them, no doubt, followed Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Many of them did not, and those who did not are in hell now. And the realization of that came to me as a short, sharp shock. It reorganized my perspective. And this may sound weird. It made me realize that my problem in church life was not the biggest problem in the world. The biggest problem in the world, actually, is that people are facing a lost eternity and need to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And God's grace renewed my spirit through that realization, and I went away from Brookwood Cemetery refreshed in my determination to live my life for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To be honest, I could have lived that out more consistently since then, but it was a revitalization I needed at the time. And maybe you've known times like that, times of tragedy, times of exhaustion, times of discouragement, times of friction, times of regret, and it's worn you down. But then God's grace has come to you, perhaps through a Bible verse or a sermon or a friend's encouragement or a walk around the cemetery, and your spirit has revived. Well, that is Paul in this morning's passage. Listen to how he describes himself in verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Over and over and over again, Paul and his buddies have been knocked down, but not knocked out. Because the grace of God has sustained them. And we're going to see something of that in our passage this morning. Now, in your morning services, you're chugging your way through to Corinthians. Uh, Just before our passage begins, Paul has been speaking about the gospel. So here's verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's been talking about the dazzling radiance of the gospel of Jesus. He's been talking about the stunning brilliance of the gospel, which teaches us that by his life and death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners just like you and just like me. The gospel reveals the glory of God as we see Jesus Christ, and it is jaw-dropping. And the gospel is the context for what Paul says next. So let's work our way through the passage, and we're going to do it in three steps. Step one is this, preservation. Preservation. We're looking at verses 7 to 12 here. We're going to see a principle, which is spelt out in verse 7, which is then illustrated in verses 8 and 9, which is then expanded upon in verses 10 to 12. But what this whole section is going to teach us is simple. It's one thing. The Lord preserves his servants. The Lord preserves his people. It's all about preservation. So listen to verse 7. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In 2018, a cleaner in one of South Korea's airports was emptying the bins. And as he did so, he he found several heavy objects. Uh, He investigated. Uh, He found lots of things wrapped in newspaper, which were really heavy. And when he unwrapped them, he discovered seven gold bars, which were worth about 250,000 pounds. On the outside, it looked like nothing. But what was inside was precious. He didn't get to keep them, by the way, poor fella. But... That is how Paul describes servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7. We're like gold bars wrapped in newspaper. We're like precious gems hidden away in clay jars. You see, back in Paul's day, clay jars were ten a penny. They were inexpensive. They were unattractive. They were easily broken. They were pretty unimpressive, really. And that is what servants of Jesus Christ are like. Pretty unimpressive. I mean, but, and here's the main point, we have treasure within. We have treasure inside. In context, that treasure is the gospel, the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul has been speaking about in verses 1 to 6. So even though servants of Jesus Christ are unimpressive, What we have inside is priceless. Now, we have the very message which makes children of the devil into children of God, which makes citizens of the world citizens of heaven. Uh, The message which makes those who are guilty before God right with God. The message which makes spiritually dead people spiritually alive. The message which takes people who are on the road to hell and puts them on the road to heaven and so on. It's the most extravagantly precious thing in all the world. Actually, I should just pause at this point and ask whether you personally have responded to this great gospel. The gospel is the most amazing news. Jesus Christ lived and died and rose to save sinners. He lived and died and rose to make people children of God, citizens of heaven, righteous before God, spiritually alive, and heading for heaven. That is the most amazing thing. And what the Lord Jesus calls you to do is trust him. He calls you to repent of your sin, or you to confess it to him and turn around to live for him. 
and he calls you to believe in him, to trust him as the only one who can save you. And if you do, all of those blessings will be yours. Have you come to Jesus Christ like that? Well, if not, please do. There is nothing more important in life you could possibly do. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are unimpressive, but they have the message of the most lavish blessing. And so, whenever there's any fruit from our ministry, says Paul, it's clear that it's been God's work and not ours. All the glory goes to him because it's his power which has been at work. And as Paul says here, God's power really is surpassingly great. Now, on the 24th of October 2003, Australia played Namibia in the Rugby World Cup Pool A match back then, and they won 142-0. Uh, makes us sad, doesn't it, that Australia haven't done so well this year. But compared to Namibia that year, Australia were surpassingly great. And God's power is like that, and then some. It's surpassingly great. No wonder he can take a clay pot like me and you and do extraordinary things for the gospel through us. Wouldn't it be brilliant if we really trusted him to unleash that surpassing power through us more than we do? That's Paul's principle. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then in verses 8 and 9, he gives a few examples of what it's like as a clay pot to experience the surpassing power of God. So listen to verses 8 and 9 again. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. What is Paul saying? Well, we were afflicted in every way, he says, but not crushed as a clay pot Paul knew what it was to feel physical, psychological, spiritual pressure, but by God's power, never crushed. We are, he says, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Better we're perplexed, but not totally lost. As a clay pot, Paul knew what it was to feel bewildered, but by God's power, he was never completely lost. Persecuted, but not forsaken, as a clay pot, Paul knew what it was to experience the opposition of those who hated the gospel, but by God's power, he was never left to face that alone. Struck down, but not destroyed. As a, as a clay pot, Paul knew what it was to be knocked down, but by God's power, never knocked out. And that is Paul's testimony. He's hard-pressed on every side, but God's power preserves him. God's power keeps him going. Uh, God's power stops him packing it all in. It's preservation. And perhaps you know what that's like. Uh, I remember listening to a sermon which John Samuel preached here uh, quite a few years ago now. And he said that there were some weeks when he just didn't know how he could keep going. That's a great advertisement, by the way, for prospective ministers here. But... God kept him going. And that is just what Paul is speaking about here. Uh, the Lord has his ways to preserve his people 
and to keep them going until their work for him is done. And just to answer the question, you may be thinking, yes, I believe this principle applies to all of God's people and not just as super servants, people like Paul and his buddies, people like Simon. And how can I say that? Because 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that all Christians will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is kept for us and we are kept for our inheritance. And that is stunning. The preservation given to Paul is given to people like us. Isn't that a relief? Now in saying this, I'm well aware of Christians who have been unable to carry on their ministries because it's been too much. So I've known missionaries who've had to come home because it's just been too lonely. And I've known pastors who've been forced out of ministry because of the behavior of some of the church members. Sometimes the pastors themselves contributed to that. I've known Christians who haven't been able to carry on leading small groups because life has overtaken them. And yet, Paul's words apply even then if you've been through something like that because you haven't had all the spiritual life squeezed out of you, have you? And you are not completely lost. And you are not alone, nor have you ever been. And you haven't been completely destroyed. Even if you do look back at the past with a degree of regret, the Lord has still preserved you. And maybe it's time to thank him for those small mercies which he's given you along the way to keep you hanging on in there spiritually. Our God is the God who preserves his people. We've seen the principle in verse 7. We've seen the principle illustrated in Paul's example in verses 8 and 9. And now we come to verses 10 to 12 where Paul expands on all of this. So listen to what he says there. Uh, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now verses 10 to 12, they, they come at us like a trio of ceramic ducks fixed to the wall of a 1950s house. Uh, The three verses have the same shape and they follow one another uh, along the wall. So the first half of verse 10 talks about Paul and his buddies carrying the death of Jesus around with them. The first half of verse 11 talks about them being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And the first half of verse 12 talks about death being at work in them, very much parallel. What does that mean? Or something like this, Paul, Paul is a jar of clay. Uh, he's constantly subject to death-dealing forces. He's constantly in deadly peril. I think he means that literally. Uh, just have a peek at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 later on if you're not sure about that. And in being constantly exposed to death, he's simply following in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior. He is, quote, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. 
But our trio of ducks are not merely negative because the second half of verse 10 talks about the life of Jesus being manifested in Paul and his buddies. And the second half of verse 11 talks about his life being revealed in them. And the second half of verse 12 talks about life coming to the Corinthians through them. Which means what? Well, it means that even as Paul is being constantly exposed to death, so the life of Jesus Christ is constantly being renewed in him. Even as he feels as though he's dying, so Jesus' life keeps on springing up inside him. And in this constant experience of revitalization, he's again following in the footsteps of his Lord and Savior. He's pursuing the pattern set by the one who died and rose. He's tasting the life of Jesus being manifested in our mortal flesh. So, pulling it all together, here's what our three ducks give us. Here's what Paul's experience teaches us. The Lord Jesus Christ, he gives life to the dying, spiritual life to the dying. He gives power to the weak. He gives strength to the drooping. He gives grace to the weary. Uh, When the servants of Jesus Christ feel that the cold breath of death on their necks, right then, he breathes that new spiritual life into us all over again. He preserves us. So Christian, here's what we're meant to take away from verses 7 to 12. It's the Lord who preserves us. Our preservation is down to him. It's not that we keep ourselves. It's not that we preserve ourselves by our daily quiet times, as important as they are. And it's not that you maintain your spiritual vitality by coming along to Duke Street, as, long, as, as important as that is. No. It's the Lord who preserves us. About two decades ago now, a Christian friend of ours was diagnosed with cancer in his early 20s. It was discovered quite late, and he had to go through months of grueling treatment. The chemo sucked the life out of him. And when it was at its worst, he said he couldn't read the Bible, he couldn't pray, he certainly couldn't get to church. All he could do was vomit. He's still alive, by God's grace, and he's a pastor now. But his testimony at the end of it all was this. The Lord kept me. I couldn't keep myself, he said. But the Lord kept me. And that is always the way it is. Even when we think we're preserving ourselves, actually, it's the Lord who's preserving us. And and you can rest in the arms of a God who treats his clay jars like that, can't you? That's preservation. Secondly, perseverance. Secondly, perseverance. I'm going to move a lot more quickly now. This isn't going to be one of those perfectly balanced three-point sermons. We've looked at preservation. But what does what does preservation look like at ground level? If we were to pop back a couple of millennia and look at Paul, what would be the evidence of that preservation in his life? Well, in a word perseverance. Listen to verses 13 to 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There are three things I want you to notice there. Uh, First, notice Paul's faith. That's verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak. Paul is quoting Psalm 116 verse 10. And there, the psalmist is expressing his confidence in the Lord, a confidence which causes him to speak out. And Paul is the same. He has faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore he perseveres in preaching the gospel. Second, notice Paul's hope. That's there in verse 14. He speaks, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So this time, Paul is looking ahead into eternity. He knows that one day God will raise him, and he will raise the Corinthian Christians and bring them right there into his immediate presence. And that hope inspires him to keep going in the present. After all, if you're on a long and difficult journey, it's the thought of the destination which keeps you going, isn't it? Uh, Let's say you're on one of those non-stop 17-hour flights to Perth, and the guy next to you, he he didn't put any deodorant on before the flight. Uh, He keeps talking to you unnaturally loudly so that it's very embarrassing. He takes up the whole armrest. Is Is there much worse than that? I don't know. He flops on top of your shoulder when he goes to sleep, and he snores. Now, what stops you bailing out? What stops you parachuting off that plane? It's the destination. It's the hope of the destination which keeps you going, that and the doors. And it's like that with Paul. He hangs on in there in his ministry because of his hope of glory. And third, I want you to notice Paul's priority because that's there in verse 15. When he speaks, he says, It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And perhaps you could see what Paul is saying there. It's like a, a daisy chain of grace and glory. He keeps speaking, and as he does, grace comes to more and more people. And as grace comes to more and more people and they believe in Jesus Christ, thanksgiving to God increases. And as thanksgiving to God increases, so God is glorified. And that's what Paul wants. That's his priority. He wants God to be glorified as more and more people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So, what does preservation look like at ground level? It looks like perseverance. Paul keeps going, and he keeps going because he has faith, verse 13, because he has hope, verse 14, and because he has the glory of God as his priority, verse 15. And isn't that instructive for us? When God preserves us, it looks like perseverance, and our perseverance will come as we exercise faith and hope, and as we have the glory of God as our priority. So, Christian here this morning, or or with us online, have faith. Trust him in the good times. Trust him in the boring times. Trust him in the ordinary times. And then trust him in the exhausting times. Trust him in the painful times. Trust him in the agonizing times. Trust him in the valley of the shadow of death. Trust him. Because that's the way of perseverance. And Christian, have hope 
Uh, Tear your eyes off the here and now. Uh, This is not where you belong. You belong in the immediate presence of God himself. Uh, What you think about the future will dictate how you live in the present. So focus there. Because that's the way to perseverance. And Christian, have the glory of God as your priority. You know, if, if you make this life, this world all about you, you will at least to some extent bail out on the Lord in the end. But if you convince your heart and mind that the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of the universe, the glory of God is truly your priority. Well, that will keep you in the race. That's the road of perseverance. So may God the Holy Spirit help us to set our hearts and our minds so keenly on those things which are above that we persevere and show God's preservation in action. That's perseverance. And it brings us to our last section. Thirdly, preeminence. Preeminence. I don't know if you've ever met an enthusiast. Uh, Maybe it's a a gadget freak. And someone happens to mention the Ember Smart Mug 2. Now, if you're not familiar with an Ember Smart Mug 2, it's because you're not a gadget geek, but it can keep your drink at precisely your preferred temperature for three hours. Anyway, someone mentions one of these, and 20 minutes later, your gadget enthusiast is still talking about it. And Paul is a bit like that. He's just mentioned his great hope of landing in God's presence, and suddenly... He's captivated. And for the next three verses, right through to the end of the chapter, he speaks with this inspired spontaneity about the preeminence of being with the Lord in the age to come. So listen to verse 16, the the children's talk verse. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's a, a brilliant summary of what he said in verses 7 to 15. And then he writes this in verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's it's about the preeminence of being with the Lord in the age to come. It's as though Paul gets his scales out. You know those old-fashioned ones like Lady Justice is holding at the Old Bailey. And on one side, he places the afflictions of this life, the the sorts of things he's been talking about since verse 7. And then on the other side, he places the eternal incomparable weight of glory which we will receive in the age to come and what happens the age to come side comes crashing down of course because that future blessing is eternal so unlike the afflictions of this life which are always in the end temporary and it's weighty it's momentous and substantial It's incomparable. It's like nothing we've ever experienced before. And it's glorious. Just glorious. I don't know too many of you, but some of you may well be going through harrowing difficulties at the moment. I wouldn't want to belittle that at all. In fact, the last time I was asked to preach on these three verses, it was at the Thanksgiving service for a little girl who died just as she was about to be born. In terms of life's bitterest pangs, that's got to be right up there. But here's what Evie's parents wrote at that time. The pain is very great and deep, 
that we are finding that God's grace is even greater and deeper. Knowing how great our God is is the only way we are able to take any comfort right now. This is what they said next. We know that he is doing good, and though we may never see the full impact of that good while in this life, we know that in the fullness of time, his goodness in taking Evie will be shown to be righteous and loving and good. What is that but someone putting their trials on the scales and finding that eternity is preeminent? If you're enduring something appalling at the moment, may you find that to be true for yourself. And in view of the glory of spending that age to come in the presence of God himself, what does Paul tell the Corinthians to do? What are we to do? Uh, Listen to verses 17 and 18 one more time. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What does Paul call us to do? To rivet our attention on that eternal unseen age. Imagine a woman taking part in an archery competition, and she rivets her attention at the gold at the center of that target, doesn't she? All her focus is there. And that's how we're to be with eternity. We focus there. We concentrate there. We aim there. We rivet our attention there. Not that we ignore this life, of course, But the way we endure the wasting away of this age is to set our hearts and our minds on what is to come. You know, I I wonder whether we should have just a bit more of a holy impatience for that age to come to arrive. How much does your heart cry out, come, Lord Jesus? We should aim there. Because one day, God will make all things new. Pain, sadness, sin, death, all will be gone. And instead, everything will be perfect. And the good things of the age to come, they will never pass away. They will never come to an end. They will never decay. They will never lose even a fraction of their luster. They will go on in this glorious changelessness for an endless eternity. Christian, aim there because that age is preeminent.